0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Guys, I am dragging today. I'm going to ask a question. I feel like I know the answer, and I'm not going to like it. I'm going to put it out there anyway. Was anyone up late watching the football game last night?
2: I was not of late watching the football game. Which football game?
1: This is the Chargers Raiders game. The one hour lightning delay. Pushing it well past my you know, parent of a young child bedtime.
0: Quinta, I am, I am pretty confident that your commitment to football is about as deep as my commitment to football. So I'm very curious. Would any answer have made you be like, ooh, I would have watched that game? Or is it just sports ball to you? Because it's just all sports ball to
2: me. No, I think football, I find football uniquely incomprehensible. Because I am not, I am not that into sports, but I grew up in a house with people who were into sports, and so, like, I know I used to be able to explain the infield fly rule. I don't think I could do it anymore, but I used to be able to do it. Like, I've been to my share of of minor league baseball games, but something about football it just doesn't it doesn't fit in my brain. I still can't explain to you what a down is. I am sorry, everyone. I am losing all the like the cool person cultural cache I've built up over the last few episodes. I
1: somehow just got into sports like in my 30s, and I think it was that I finally no longer felt competition with the players because I was older than all of them.
3: (laughs) Well, you're still in competition with Tom Brady.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security and the Chamber of Secrets. I am Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor. I am very happy to be here today with my co-senior editors and colleagues and friends and frenemies. Quinta Jurassic.
2: Hello, am I a frenemy?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think we've had enough confrontation over over these podcasts (laughs) that we can officially say frenemy.
2: Good faith confrontation.
1: Yeah, good faith frenemy, good faith frenemy. And Alan
0: Rosenstein. Hello, hello. I think of myself as my own frenemy. Your own best friend of me. My own best friend of me. That's right.
1: Exactly. And we are very, very thrilled to have on with us today a first-time Rational Security guest, Bryce Clem, Lawfare Associate Editor. Hello, Bryce. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. We're really excited to have you here. Now, Bryce, you are in a unique position of a lot of our guests in that you have actually worked in professional broadcast media before. Isn't that right? Before you came and joined Lawfare.
3: Yes, that's right. I worked at CBS News' Washington, D.C. Bureau for about a year and a half before I came to Lawfare.
2: So you can tell us what we're doing wrong.
1: Yeah, Bryce
0: understands. Bryce knows just how deeply amateurish we are at all of this. Don't you, Bryce?
3: No comment.
1: (laughs) Well, with that, uh, we are excited to have everyone here listening in for the What's in the Box edition. With, with, with the perspectives that may be a very specific cultural reference not everyone involved in this podcast recording is in the loop on that's okay so enough people in the audience will get it
0: yeah the what the audience is not seeing is the completely confused facial expressions of literally every other person involved in the podcast <laughs> recording today
2: as alan likes to say podcasting is a visual medium has
1: no one seen the movie seven not at all david fincher
2: classic i'm just gonna not. trust you
1: Okay. All right. It's worth a, it's. A, I won't give it away because it's all spoiler, but a box comes into play. That said, with that in mind, uh, for today's episode, uh, we'll be here talking about, first up, the problem with nosy neighbors. How concerned should we be about the fact that the Chinese military got up in Taiwan's business and airspace over this past weekend? Topic number two, if you want to be popular, don't go to law school. Does the Supreme Court's declining popularity mean it is headed for a legitimacy crisis? And finally, Talk about your outside-the-box financial planning. What do the recently unleashed Pandora Papers tell us about the world's wealthy elites and the people leaking information about them? For our first topic, I'm going to hand it over to you, Quinta.
2: All right. So first off, I love the nosy neighbors framing. I'm not sure. It, it seems a little ominous in terms of what, what the People's Republic of China would look like peeking over the fence. But the the news specifically that we're discussing is that according to the Times, nearly 80 Chinese airplanes flew into or flew near Taiwanese airspace over the weekend, which, as you can imagine, created a bit of a ruckus in Taiwan, which ended up scrambling fighter jets in response. So, obviously, it is no secret that the People's Republic of China would like Taiwan to become de facto part of the People's Republic of China and Taiwan does not want that. And we've seen, you know, kinds of sorties like this before. My impression, at least, is that this level of (laughs) aircraft being sent and this close to Taiwan and not for any particular occasion is something that may be new and is potentially ominous um, in terms of what it means for China-Taiwan relations. So just to throw it out to the group, I'm curious for y'all's takes because to be completely honest, I'm this is not a area that I'm expert in and I'm not sure what to make of it one way or another. Like do we think that this is a sign that China is seriously gonna try to take over Taiwan by military force? Or is this kind of just, you know, a little bit of a flex that might not end up in anything anytime soon?
0: I mean I th- I think China has been telling us that it is at the very least, willing to use military force to take over Taiwan for several years now. And there are a lot of signs, not just in terms of its military activities, but also regarding the fundamentals of Chinese domestic politics that suggest that it is moving in that direction. And we can get into all of that. I mean, I think what's most concerning to me about what China did is is not so much that they're preparing tactically to bomb taiwan anytime soon but rather that these sort of things can very quickly spiral out of control right what if a chinese aircraft gets shot down what if a chinese aircraft malfunctions and to save face china claims that it's been shot down all of those things can very quickly turn into a situation in which china in particular feels it's committed to a course of action um, that leads to the invasion of Taiwan. This is the, one of the things that keeps me up at night. And, and I think that we've not been nearly concerned enough about this in the United States, at least.
3: So I will second everything that Alan just said, but also add that this latest incursion into Taiwan's ADIS, is what it's called the Air Defense Identification Zone, with the 80 aircraft was on China's, the People's Republic of China's national holiday on October 1st. Uh, they have sort of a long celebration for that. But a few weeks ago, I was talking with Julian Ku on the Lawfare podcast, and he said something that really surprised me and I think is sort of lacking in U.S. media coverage of this. He he told me that the urgency within Taiwan with regards to the threat from China is lower than you would imagine. And as Americans, I think we tend to believe that countries with mandatory service requirement like Taiwan, Israel, and South Korea are sort of constantly preparing for war, but That is sort of far from the case in Taiwan. There's really not a lot of enthusiasm for serving in the military. Defense spending is really low. In 2019, Taiwan spent around 1.7% of its GDP on defense spending. And just to give you a little bit of a sense of what Taiwan's conscription is like, the, the service requirement is only four months. So South Korea's is 18 to 22 months and Israel's is 32 months. So I think we're sort of missing the fact that, you know, will the U.S. go to defend Taiwan is is it certainly a debate that we have quite often. But will Taiwan even go fully to bat for itself is another thing that Julian spoke with me about.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. I listened to that podcast and, and thought that was good that Julian brought that up because I think it raises this question about this type of conflict that's likely to come if these things kind of get pushed, come to shove. There's a risk of a major, major conflict, like a World War-style conflict. But the sheer cost of that also means there's, I think, a substantial likelihood of whichever fact pattern plays out, that actors are going to have incentive to back away from that or find ways to back away from that. And that includes the Taiwanese, as well as Americans, as well as Chinese, as well as other regional actors, right? In an effort particularly to turn into like a longer-term game. I think you actually see that reflected in what the Chinese did this past weekend to some extent. And, you know, I hate when we turn every story into a media criticism story, which is like something we tend to do here at Rational Security. Uh, but here I think it's actually warranted. Like a lot of the coverage of this really did not pick up on some of the subtleties as what I understand of what the Chinese did, which is that they did not fly into Taiwanese sovereign airspace. They flied into uh, defense identification zone, as Bryce noted. This is an area that is kind of self-defined by states. There's actually not a clear treaty basis for it, but it's pretty well-defined practice where states say, okay, here's an area where when aircrafts enter the space, we can ping them, say, who are you? Identify yourself. Give us some information on yourself, particularly where they're bound into that state's border. Taiwan, not considered a state by most places, but let, I'm using that term broadly here, setting aside any recognition issues. And that's really what China's messing with here. And it's something they've done before. The Scale the rapidity here and the repetition, I think, is very new and seems to be the most concerning aspect of this. But stuff like this is not entirely new. China's done it before. And in particular, notably, this zone kind of wraps itself around the island. And China only had a very small number of intrusions in recent weeks across the median line that kind of is the narrowest space between Taiwan, the main island and China's mainland. Most of the incursions actually occurred around kind of the southwestern edge of the island that really is an area where it necessarily wasn't close to the population centers, the military centers of the island, but was nonetheless going into this area and defying Taiwan's effort to impose its own rules. And coming between Taiwan and an outlying island there that it uses as a military base, although I don't think it's actually popular. I can't remember the name of the island now. Um, this is my rough understanding. I may have some of the de- details slightly off. So it's slightly less provocative, I think, than a lot of people have said. I think what's really notable. Again, it's it's a high scale. It's a high velocity. It really is intended to like make the Taiwanese burn energy, burn fuel, or maybe become so acclimated to these sorts of activities that if it were to become more serious, they would not respond with the swiftness that they would otherwise, because it's a kind of boy who cries wolf situation. And those are all big strategic kind of calculators. At the same time, it's not quite as provocative as I think a lot of people are making it sound. And the real question becomes, well, how continuous a pattern of activity is this? Is this just the equivalent or something in response to U.S. phone ops, like freedom of navigation operations, which China really takes issue with, or that we steer ships into maritime territory, China claims, without abiding by its notification rules? Is this their effort to kind of do something similar, but it's kind of a one-off or periodic thing, not a sustained activity? Or is it really sustained, meaning it's going to become a real drain on Taiwan's defense resources and capabilities?
0: I just want to respond to something Scott said earlier, which is that, you know, this is the sort of thing that could spark a new world war and that creates incentives for all parties to to be cool, as it were. And I, I'm not sure I, I agree with that, largely because I don't think it's credible to think that both sides here, the Chinese on the one hand and the United States on the other, I mean, obviously, the other side is Taiwan, they're the one that's most directly affected. But If there's a security guarantee, it's going to be from the United States, not from Taiwan itself, given how small it is relative to China. I'm actually not convinced that there is the sort of symmetry of either means or motive that gets both parties to consider to take the other particularly seriously. And what I mean by that is China has many, many reasons to invade Taiwan. Some of those are historical, cultural, ideological reasons. I think the biggest one is China's own domestic politics. China's in a, in a very bad long-term political position. It has declining birth rate. It has severe gender imbalance. It may be at the beginning of a huge housing bubble bursting. There's a lot of corruption. There's a, There are big, big problems with with the Chinese domestic system. And so the easiest way for Xi Jinping to shore that up would be to take all that energy and direct it outwards. And once the Chinese government is sort of on a course toward the invasion of Taiwan, it seems hard to see how it could back off without undermining its own credibility and the entire regime coming apart. On the other hand, there's nothing remotely like this for the United States, right? The United States has ideological interests, obviously, in Taiwan being a free and democratic nation, but it doesn't have anything like the same strategic interest, nor does it have anything like the same ability to project the sort of force that would be necessary across the Pacific Ocean. Right. Nor as far as I can tell is there any appetite whatsoever among the American public for the sort of sustained commitment that it would take to defend Taiwan from China. So I, I don't actually see the sort of symmetry that would get both parties to back down. I, I think China probably, and I suspect correctly, does not view American security guarantees or the the strategic ambiguity, right, that America has been has had officially with respect to Taiwan, I don't think China has any reason to to take that particularly seriously. And, and what has always been strange is the kind of refusal of folks in the D.C. foreign policy establishment to talk about that directly. And maybe I'm totally wrong, but if I am, I mean, it'd be good to understand sort of what is it in this that I'm missing?
2: No, that's an interesting point. I mean, Bryce, I wanted to go back to you and talk about your conversation with Julian a little more, did he say if you have a sense of why in Taiwan there's not a particular appetite for it? Is there like a sense that China won't really try this? Is it, you know, people living under a volcano who just kind of don't think about it and go about their day? Like, what's the dynamic there?
3: To the degree that he gave me is a sense of, of why that is, it seemed to more be a Taiwan domestic politics issue in terms of the military is not a very popular institution within the country. People hate. The draft. And also, I think a few years ago, a recruit died due to alleged abuse by some military officers. And so that's a big problem. Another issue is that when you think about the history of Taiwan, the founding party, the KMT, was the military. Chiang Kai-shek was in charge. And so it's really politically associated. You know, sometimes in the U.S., we think we have problems with civil relations. I mean, imagine if one party could literally claim the founding of the U.S. military. That's the degree to which I got a, an answer from Julian on that.
1: Yeah, just to respond to uh, Alan's point on that, I think that's, that's useful context. You know, I I think you have to look about at this issue through a lens a lot bigger than Taiwan, right? Like. You're right that Taiwan itself, there isn't kind of a reciprocal or parallel strategic or cultural or historical or political interest in. Although I think, you know, historically there's been more than you think, right? Like uh, the Carter administration attempted to really reduce U.S. commitments to Taiwan, did substantially reduce them, but faced a lot of pushback in Congress, which enacted into statute a lot of the relationship we currently have with Taiwan, where we basically treat Taiwan as if it were a foreign government, the government of a foreign state, have a lot of security relationships with it, but that are items that are pretty exceptional and really written into statutory law. And there's sustained congressional interest in that Taiwanese relationship. They have it a very effective advocacy body. There is strong economic ties. Like There is a vocal pro-Taiwan constituency in the United States. I don't think we should... Ignore that. It may not be quite as strong as maybe it once was, and we can dispute whether that's an accurate reflection of U.S. strategic interests or other interests or not. But I do think it's there politically at least. But I think the real point here is, is that I think Taiwan is perceived as a lot of ways as one major front of growing tension with China in terms of a range of regional interests where China is at odds with other members of the international community and other states in the region, whether it's other territorial and maritime disputes, the South China Sea dispute, of course, you know, various types of economic ties, where China is using leverage to, you know, pressure certain outsides of outcomes or for its political advantage. Going back to our discussion the last week, you know, just the Chinese hostage diplomacy regarding Canada and major Chinese officials who are Right, credibly accused of criminal activity, arrested overseas, and them, you know, essentially holding foreign nationals hostage as leverage to get them free. These are all pretty norm-busting behavior in ways that actually do pose a lot of direct threats to the United States and lots of other states' interests. And so there's a hesitancy to say, okay, we we can't really signal to say that it's okay for China to do this, or we have to do some sort of pushback. Because otherwise, China is going to incorporate this message that says, oh, we're not willing to push back on these regional interests. And therefore, it's going to embolden them to take it further. What I think is more likely is that the focus is less on really what stopping China from taking Taiwan if it wants to take Taiwan. I think that's You know, something they want to deter and there's gonna be a strong deterrence posture. But frankly, you know, we used to have tens of thousands of troops on Taiwan before 1979. We don't anymore. I think we have something like three dozen. There's talks about putting a unit there as a tripwire. It's something that I think is like legally problematic, policy problematic, probably won't happen in the current environment. Well, I could be wrong. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the politics fall on that one. But I, I think that the key point is to make it clear that if if China does move on Taiwan and it succeeds, it does so at immense cost to other regional interests that are available to it. And I think that's likely to be where the shift is because it both you know accounts for that disparity in priority over Taiwan itself while still providing a deterrent and making clear that If China pushes its envelope there, there's going to be a lot of pressure in other positions. Um, The real question, though, is that all these things are hard to calibrate and depend on potentially disparate perceptions of threat and risk and appropriate behavior. And there is always that risk of overstep there. Deterrence theory in general is always premised upon the idea that if the consequences are really bad, both parties have a incentive to be small c conservative about things, at least in situations where there might be a misunderstanding or something. And so that's kind of the the cooling factor here. But there is still that risk that one of these things could accidentally trigger something. But in my mind, I think it's much more likely is less likely that something's gonna get accidentally triggered than as you know, China makes a policy decision and decides to go for it. And then all the other countries in the region of the United States have to decide, well, what consequences are we we gonna impose? And I suspect that's where a lot of the conversation is happening now and signaling around that.
3: And just one last quick note, one thing that Julian mentioned on that subject was that the Biden administration's policy with regard to Taiwan has meaningfully differed. And one key way from the Trump administration is they're trying to involve more countries in the region in Taiwan security, namely Japan.
2: I will say that this has all been reminding me of the first inkling that I had that the Trump administration was just going to be a true dumpster fire in terms of like diplomatic processes, which if you if you cast your mind back, to those those late days of 2016 was when uh, Trump took a call from the president of Taiwan saying when thus causing a minor diplomatic crisis. So we've come a long way.
0: So speaking of dumpster fires, let's turn to the Supreme Court, everyone, which some Americans increasingly think is a dumpster fire. Uh, so the Supreme Court has not been doing super well as of late, at least in terms of its public perception. The latest polls have its approval rating down to 40%, which is a new low. It's much, much higher than Congress's, I think, single digit approval rating. Uh, But the Supreme Court has historically, uh, even when it's made controversial decisions, enjoyed broad approval from the American public. And that appears to be ebbing, and we can talk about the reasons why that uh, might be the case. The court begins its new term, this week, and there are, uh, it's going to be a blockbuster term, uh, and we, th- we throw that around often, but this year is probably actually going to deserve that label. The most hotly anticipated decision is going to be about abortion, where the court has taken up a, a case that presents squarely the question of whether Roe versus Wade should be upheld or repealed. There are other high profile cases about gun control, church. State relations, the court might, depending on what it grants cert on, have an opportunity to end affirmative action in this country. Um, And of course, this is all in the context of a 6-3 conservative court, where the the bulk of the justices have been appointed by Republican presidents, despite Republican presidents having lost most of the, I forget now what the exact uh, number is, but it's something like eight of the nine last popular votes. Um, And the the court seems to have recognized that it has a bit of an image problem. And so in the last couple of weeks, a variety of justices have been making public statements, speeches, trying to push back in certain ways against characterizations of the court as political. Justice Barrett has done so. Justice Alito, in particular, had some strong words about certain recent criticisms of the court's procedural decisions. So the question, and and I'm going to ask you, Quinta, first, because I know you've thought and written a lot about this. You know, does the Supreme Court have a growing legitimacy problem? And if so, is there anything it should do about it?
2: Well, I think the answer is obviously yes. It it clearly does. I mean, when you have four justices go out there and say, "We don't have a legitimacy problem and I'm insulted that you said that we did. Uh, you have a legitimacy problem." <laughs> this strikes me as a very natural place to end up given everything that has happened at the court over the last four or five years. And I was looking back and former lawfare executive editor Susan hennessy and I wrote a piece in the Atlantic a year ago almost to the day. Uh it was October 4th, 2020 about the idea that was being passed around of adding seats to the court. Um this is right after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. Uh, Trump had nominated Amy Coney Barrett who was then confirmed and Susan and I were basically arguing that, you know, more in sorrow than in anger, we had come to believe that it made sense to add seats, whether you want to call that expanding the court, packing the court, what have you. And our argument was less the sort of really hardline, realist argument that, you know, the conservatives have control of the court, liberals have an opportunity to seize control, and they should do it because this is raw power politics, and more that The legitimacy of the court has been degraded by, you know, a lot of things that have happened over the last couple decades. But obviously, in in recent memory, um, Mitch McConnell's refusal to confirm Merrick Garland, the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh following his sort of disastrous Senate confirmation hearings, the scars of which I think have very much not healed, and then the decision to nominate and confirm Amy Coney Barrett. And that what we're arguing is essentially that we should think more seriously about ways to change the composition of the court or change how people were added to the court or sort of rework the institution, not to seize power, but to improve the legitimacy of the institution. And our argument, and I'll, I won't go too academic here, is based on a piece written by David Posen, who's a law professor, about uh, constitutional hardball and anti-hardball. Basically, meaning, you know, in order to get to a place where you're no longer trapped in an escalatory cycle. You have to give the side that's been repeatedly screwed over something to kind of tide them over so they don't feel like they're the losing party when you reach a truce. And so that was our argument for adding seats to the court. And obviously that did not happen. And I think that we can now see that, you know, the court with nine justices is not looking so hot as an institution enjoying public legitimacy. So, All of which is to say, I don't know what the solution is. There's obviously there's a commission on what should be done with the court going on right now that was appointed by President Biden. I highly doubt that whatever they come up with will be implemented just because, you know, the forces of inertia are strong. But it seems pretty clear to me that the Supreme Court has a problem and that, you know, we might as well think about pie in the sky ideas about fixing it.
3: So on that note, a pie in the sky idea, I do agree with Quinta that there is somewhat of a legitimacy crisis forming. But I think most of it lies, actually, the reforms that could help it lie outside of the court. And I blame a lot of this on the confirmation process that we've witnessed over the past few years. I spent both Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett's confirmation processes. I was in a newsroom during this. And the American public, we have to keep in mind that the American public's first introduction to these Supreme Court justices is a harshly political process. And I think something that I found interesting in a lot of the justices statements over the summer where they were saying, you know, we're not political. We don't make these rulings based on political preferences is, well, what do you expect the American public to think if the entire process that we just watched you go through was extremely political? So I would say that, that the reforms that I envision are, are more centered on the confirmation process.
1: Yeah, I, I think Bryce rates a really valid point. You know, there's so many elements about the Supreme Court that it's really objectionable and problematic and distasteful. And to some extent, the lo- lower federal courts, which I think actually get ignored in a lot of these conversations and need to be a bigger part of the conversation at the Supreme Court, if for no other reason than, then frankly, there are some solutions that are a little more approachable there and don't aren't quite as constitutionally fraught. I will say that, from my perspective... You clearly do have some sort of popular legitimacy lapse in the courts, and it's a problem for the court. It's something they need to be concerned about. It's something Chief Justice Roberts very clearly is concerned about. Right? Like we've seen a turn in the way he approaches opinions, the way he frames them, the way he narrows them, the you know opinions he chooses to write. The fact that he's kind of become a swing justice and now not quite a swing justice, like a kind of periodic you know joiner with uh, liberal justices on uh, at least ways to frame or narrow certain issues. You know, indicates there is this concern to say, like, well, we're not supposed to be a political body. We're not supposed to be a legal body. We're driving these, reaching a sort of approach. And the defense that you've heard from a lot of these justices on the left and the right is that, no, I mean, we're approaching these things from a judicial philosophy standpoint. We're not partisan hacks. But the problem with those defenses, I think, is that I'm not sure there is that big of a difference between a partisan hack and somebody who has a difference in judicial philosophy, right? Like, you know, if you have a particularly strongly held view, there's a lot of people that think that people who disagree with their strongly held view are going to be partisan hacks and could only reach that conclusion by virtue of compromised priorities or a degree of instrumentalist logic that's somehow not faithful to the institution. Uh, And frankly, that works both directions, although historically, you know, last 20 or 30 years, I really think the political right has invoked that rhetoric a lot more, in part as a reaction to the perception of a very activist liberal court throughout the 60s and 70s. Maybe we'll see a flip of that now, right, as we see what is very clearly primed to be by I think most reasonable measures, a fairly activist conservative court that will drive the liberals the other direction. In my mind though, you know, the fixes, I think a lot of these fixes that people talk about tend to be pretty dramatic. In expanding the court, I don't have an objection to, but I'm not sure on and of itself it actually gets you anywhere because it does create this tit for tat. Raising the court problems, like your ability to get it to stop at 11 or 12 justices, wherever you expand it to, depends on you persuading the Republicans that, yeah, what they did was wrong, you're right, and we will stop uh, to avoid a cycle of escalation. I'm not sure it, that's clear that that alone will get you there. The proposal I find most intriguing and most persuasive tend to be things that look at the lifetime appointment of judges, which I think is kind of the, not root of all evil, but I'll I'll use that phrase here, uh, the original tree from which the poison fruit has fallen, because it really restricts how you can actually structure the court's composition when you have lifetime appointments. There is, I think, a really interesting and fascinating legislative proposal by a group called Fix the Court that's been out there for at least a decade now, I think, maybe not quite a decade, but close to it, that would basically put in 18-year term limits. I think they make a very persuasive case that this can be done Without a constitutional amendment, as well, in part by putting justices on a senior status at a certain point, but taking them off the initial rotating docket, which is what we do for, you know, lower court judges that are also lifetime appointees. So I don't see why it's constitutionally unavailable for for Supreme Court justices either. And so, you know, I I think there are options out there, but really that all those things are going to be. I just don't think they're politically feasible in the near future. You're never going to get, you know. Joe Manchin Kristen Cinema, Sinema uh, or whoever else you need entirely comfortable enough with a really dramatic reform proposal. Maybe the term limits might get there. You could even get some Republicans there because basically what you're saying with those is, hey, let's just make the court look like who we actually elect into office. And you're kind of saying, like, if you think you're going to win the popular vote, uh or they win the presidency and the senate for the next several years, then you'll have the advantage and you don't have so much reason to object to it. But you know, other than that, even that I think is pretty unlikely. So really the question really comes like what can the court itself do internally? And there's a limited set of options there, but but I think there are some things that, that are worth considering.
0: So I I think the the root of a lot of confusions in discussions about the court and its legitimacy is this distinction between political and partisan, um, which is something Scott just talked about. But I, I think it's worth really unpacking some more. There's a point that uh, Noah Feldman, uh, who's another law professor, made uh, on a recent podcast that I think is really important, which is that, of course, the court is political because the process by which members of the court are appointed is political. The Constitution leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And so obviously, the justices are going to bring in their own priors and legal commitments into that. And you're going to have different views based on whether a Democrat or a Republican or a conservative or liberal or a moderate president appointed those, and there's actually nothing wrong with that, and and it's actually a, a big problem that the justices keep saying that they're non-political, because it's so obviously false, and I think the more they say that, the more people think that they're lying, that they're being lied to, right? And and this is not just a problem when the justices make speeches as justices. This is a problem when the justices are. Facing confirmation. So, Chief Justice Roberts famously said that his job was just to call balls and strikes. I think Justice Sotomayor said something kind of similarly anodyne about neutrality. And every justice at some point has to say during their confirmation hearing, Oh, I'm just neutral. I just read the law. And the problem is, it becomes increasingly clear that that's a lie. And as that becomes increasingly clear, people start thinking that the court is nothing but a bunch of hacks. But there's a difference between being political and being partisan, right? Being partisan is about voting for a position that'll help your political party. And that is what is truly dangerous, right? That's what turns the court into another branch of democracy, into a essentially useless institution from the perspective of the protection of individual rights. And so I think the problem is, on the one hand, the court could stop pretending that it's not political, right? That would would actually help over the long term. And and on the other hand, people who want to fix the court need to understand that if they're going to fix the court in a way that makes it more partisan, they're not fixing the court, they're just getting rid of the court functionally. And this is, to me, the main problem with court packing, right? It's, It's not just that you get an escalatory spiral, like Scott pointed out, it's that you get an escalatory spiral where the people who are nominated to fill those new spots are nominated specifically because of their partisan reliability, right? So folks who are trying to, and and I think this is where I I disagree with the substance of of Quinta and Susan's article from from last year, if if you want to advocate for expanding the court, that's fine. There are reasons to do that. But it's not to preserve the legitimacy of the court. It's to just get rid of the court entirely as a useful, separate branch of government. Now, there are plenty of Western democracies that don't have anything like a strong, completely independent Supreme Court that can invalidate whatever it wants and is the last word in everything. And they do just fine. And maybe the United States would be okay with that. But but I I don't think that reformers can argue that expanding the size of the court would actually improve its legitimacy. It would just get rid of having the court as we have it. Now, I think the 18-year term change is kind of obvious. I mean, I, I feel like It's like obviously the right answer, actually. I mean, I'm surprised that it's not been pushed more by by both sides. But of course, that's not going to satisfy, you know, folks on the left or on the right for whom control over the court is the most important priority
1: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: So to be clear, I like 18-year terms. I'm Absolutely in favor of that. I mean, Alan, what I would say to your point that adding seats to the court—and first off, the idea of adding seats is now obviously completely hypothetical—because when Susan and I wrote that that piece, we were assuming that if the Democrats won the Senate, it would be a more substantial majority than they ended up having. So we're we're this is really hypothetical. But to your point about adding seats, not saving, but getting rid of the court—the court is gone. Like that, that is, that is why Susan and I wrote that piece. We, I think, I don't want to speak for Susan. I would have agreed with you until a few years ago. And what made me change my mind was I came to feel that the court, as you know, we knew it does not exist anymore. And we can keep pretending that it's still there and sort of prop up that image of a court that is political, but not partisan. But my argument would be that it's gone, and I differ from the people on the left who would say, it's gone, good riddance, this is a matter of raw political power, let's just grab power and keep it, and say, what we need to do is de-escalate this spiral and restore legitimacy by showing that Democrats are willing to play hardball. Because if the Democrats aren't willing to play hardball, the Republicans have no incentive to come to the table and make changes. Because they know that the Democrats will always roll over, so that that's what we're getting to by making the constitutional hardball as anti hardball argument that you need to show you know it's deterrence, you need to show that you're actually willing to use your weapon currently, the democratic approach is to kind of roll over and say, "Don't hurt me." so our argument was that in this hypothetical world in which the Democrats had you know more than a fifty one vote majority that there would need to be some kind of show of force. Imagine, you know, adding a seat or something like that. And then once you have done that, you can get to a more serious discussion of how the court should actually be changed. But look, I mean, I keep saying this is totally hypothetical. I think Scott makes a very good point that there are changes that we can make to the federal judiciary, not at the Supreme court level because there are other courts too, and changes that the judiciary can make within itself. Like, Uh, sexual harassment is a huge problem. Um, There's an incredible Wall Street Journal report that I know Scott wanted to talk about, about judges who just seem to be completely unaware (laughs) of disclosure and recusal obligations in terms of holding stocks and then ruling in cases in which the companies in which they own stocks were parties. So there is a lot that can be done to shore up public confidence. I don't think I fully believe at this point that public confidence in the Supreme Court is going to come back short of radical measures, which won't happen.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I sympathize and as I mentioned, I've already I sympathize with the reform proposals and the desire for the opportunity to play hardball. But I you know, the real answer is Democrats just haven't had the opportunity to play hardball institutionally. And it's not clear they're going to anytime in the near future, barring a massive democratic shift in the electorate in their direction that overcomes their disadvantages that are inherent in the Senate, um, and the Electoral College. So it's a different game. You know, this really becomes A long game. This becomes a game kind of like Republicans were looking at in the mid 1970s, right? I think, which is that you've got to mobilize Democratic forces, your base, expand your camp, and get people mobilized around making this an issue before you can move in this direction. We can start talking about, like, well, what should we do when we get there? But the dynamics are going to look pretty different on the ground than they look now. So, you know, that's what I think the future of this is. A lot of these discussions of reform, they tend to be, you know, we're we're going to see what the Biden administration comes up with a Supreme Court reform commission. They're going to release the report, I think, after Thanksgiving, if I recall correctly. Like they're going to come up with a proposal. I'd be very surprised if it goes anywhere. I'm cautiously, maybe term limits again, because it seems like that should have bipartisan appeal. But you know, who knows who's going to put their weight behind doing that? Because it doesn't necessarily give a clear answer that's going to satisfy the wings of other party that are most mobilized or most vocal around this. The one thing I will say is, I think there are things the court itself can do. Um, that need to get more attention and be talked about more. Some of these relate to the issues Quinta mentioned that are really serious and should in any responsible democracy where we're so many so obsessed with these other issues that cannot be fixed would be major crises. Like the fact that law clerks are being systematically exposed to sexual harassment, workplace discrimination with no really clear effective remedies, and frankly have been for several decades as kind of a not-so-secret secret within elite legal circles is absurd and pretty awful and something that begs some sort of remedy and serious response from the courts and not from the courts, from Congress, in my view. The same also goes for the fact that we basically have self-regulation, which is a bit of an oxymoron, as we all know, uh, in regards to ethical recusals and other steps like that by the courts that's been revealed by this Wall Street Journal report. And we also have the secret dockets issue that we've all been seeing for the last few years, the fact Supreme Court does seem more willing to entertain expedited measures without the full process and scope of briefing that we would expect to be deciding major questions. That itself is a big problem. And those are all things that actually the court and particularly Chief Justice Roberts can do things about internally in amending its rules, in handling how administers the court. And frankly, I kind of think push pressure on those issues could actually push the court in a particular direction, particularly scrutiny, because honestly, the court is not an institution that's used to getting scrutiny or credible public criticism of those sorts of efforts and those sorts of aspects of its operations. And they may yield dividends if we see it. We're beginning to see some congressional action around sexual harassment issues and other issues. I think that's a good thing to certainly bring attention to the issue. We've seen some very brave testimony from people who are affected by this, something that... We haven't seen even those have been going on for many years and other quarters. And I hope we see more of that. And I hope we see more space being made in these conversations for those issues where we can actually see progress made despite uh, our legislative kind of lock around these issues. But I don't know. That all remains to be seen. Speaking about things that remain to be seen, we still have a third topic. Wow that was <laughs> that was a that was a forced that forced was segue. really bad that
0: was so was forced, forced? I mean, speaking speaking of a third topic we have a third
1: topic there we go this past uh, week we saw the release of a pretty major investigation being channeled through the international consortium for investigative journalists this is kind of. Part three, the epic conclusion of a three-part series of investigations looking into offshore financing and the big offshore system that lots of very wealthy institutions uh, and individuals, I should say, use to move their wealth, arguably hide their wealth, sometimes disguise the source of their wealth from sometimes less than desirable activities. This set of papers is being called the Pandora Papers. And it's kind of different from the prior two. People may remember the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers as being kind of the prior two leaks that looked a lot like this. But each of those was from a particular law firm in one case and a particular, I think, financial services firm, if I recall correctly, in the other. They were a huge tranche of documents, but kind of a slice of the industry. This release, which is the biggest one by far, is actually a collection of documents from at least 14, if I recall correctly, different firms covering a huge swath of activities that The Washington Post and some international publications and working with them through the ICIJ have been digging through and discovered such nuggets as a secret condominium being paid for apparently by Vladimir Putin for his baby mama somewhere overseas. Uh, We see the King of Jordan having luxury properties held in Washington, D.C. through shell companies. We see, interestingly, South Dakota beginning to step into this role where they have banking transparency laws that are rivaling you know, Belize and some of these other countries that have been widely criticized by the United States for their banking secrecy laws and the fact that they facilitate these sorts of hidden economic transactions and offshore economic relationships. So this raises, I think, a couple of questions in my mind. The first one, I think, is how big of a policy problem is this, I guess, for the United States, since we are a little bit of a U.S.-leaning podcast, but also for other countries? Like, is this a major, major policy concern? It's worth noting, I thought, one of the most interesting facts is that they said, while these systems are used heavily by billionaires, American billionaires use them far less than billionaires from other countries. Can we tax them so little to begin with? That was the from, I believe, the post-analysis. The second question I have, though, is actually, I think, the more meta question about this, which is, who's leaking this information? When the Panama Papers were really leaked, there's a lot of speculation that it was actually being leaked by a Western intelligence agency, because a lot of papers, among the things that revealed was a lot of information about Russian elites and Vladimir Putin. That's been not necessarily debunked, but disputed by the publication that served as the source for those documents. They told their source, they put a message from their source on the record saying, I do not work for an intelligence agency. I'm a Concerned Citizen didn't get more information than that, but they said they believe he they are not an intelligence asset or an employee for an intelligence agency. But it's hard to imagine a single whistleblower getting access to such a broad range of files from different institutions. So I don't know who, who exactly could leak this. Maybe there's multiple people. Maybe it's something they've been collecting over a long period of time, but I just don't know. Uh, and I think that'll be an interesting... Thing that people, as they try and figure out what to make of this information, need to dig into and start thinking about a little bit more. But Alan, let me turn to you first with, with those two questions. Or, and the second question being, you know, we've seen a lot of criticism about major leaks, you know, WikiLeaks posing major national security threats about other leakers and then the US national security apparatus being a major threat. But here, people don't seem to have those concerns. Like, you know, this is at least for the people involved, and there may be lots of innocent people whose data is trapped up in here you know, violation of their privacy rights of, frankly, almost certainly a violation of lots of foreign countries' financial regulation and privacy laws. How do we differentiate these sorts of leaks from the more leaks that we're more familiar talking about and thinking about perhaps here at Lawfare and here in the United States? Is there a way to distinguish them? Should we be distinguishing them? And And if not, do we need to have a little bit more of a kind of unified approach or way of thinking about these? Because right now it strikes me that we treat these very differently than we treat other sorts of leaks.
0: So I think some of it is definitely opportunistic in the sense that what you think of a particular leak and its appropriateness will inevitably depend on what you think of the substance of that leak and how it fits in with your political goals and political priors. And I do think there are legitimate ways of distinguishing. And again, we don't know a ton yet about the background of this particular set of leaks. But I do think there are ways of distinguishing what we've seen here in the Panama Papers from something like WikiLeaks, right? I mean, across a number of dimensions. So, so one is the motive with which this was leaked, right? You know, interfering in another country's elections is not so great. That's different, I think, than exposing corruption of leaders. Now, obviously, those are all related because by exposing the corruption of leaders, you're inevitably interfering in their domestic political system. Right? But I do think some, some lines can be drawn. And the second way to differentiate is what comes up in the leaks themselves. So WikiLeaks was an attempt to demoralize the left wing of the Democratic Party by showing that the Democratic establishment favored Hillary Clinton, which, again, is maybe distasteful, but hardly illegal and kind of what a lot of political parties do in Western nations right? So it was not disclosed because there was some horrible corruption going on in the Democratic Party. It was disclosed to create a bunch of bad feelings within the Democratic Party. Now, maybe those bad feelings were justified, right? I'm not here to take an opinion on who the DNC should have supported back in 2016. Um, But again, I think that's different than if what you're trying to do is highlight corruption and serious problems of rich billionaires and world leaders getting to hide their assets around the world. Now, look, that being said, leaking is never the first best answer, right, for a number of reasons. I think most notably because you are violating a lot of people's privacy, right? I'm not super concerned about Vladimir Putin's privacy here, but I, you're, but I am concerned about the privacy of all the individuals that got caught up in this. And to the extent that intelligence agencies are involved... I think that creates issues, not because I have trouble distinguishing between Western intelligence on the one hand and Russian intelligence. On the other hand, I don't think that is equivalent, right, in terms of moral culpability, because I I think the motives for which those different intelligence agencies are acting are very different. But because, you know, if we get to a point where all these leaks and leak organizations are just being used as fronts by different intelligence agencies, we're going to get to a point where. No one trusts anything they read, which is already kind of a problem, but it's going to get even worse. So this is my qualified defense of leaks like the Panama Papers or these Pandora Papers.
2: Two comments. First, on the discussion we're having about WikiLeaks, and second, on the actual substance of the reporting. On WikiLeaks, I think another... Thing that is important to keep in mind from pre-2016 days from the first tranche of WikiLeaks documents that were leaked Julian Assange by Chelsea Manning. It's worth noting that the indictment of Assange charges him specifically or specifically notes that he was sort of coaching Manning in what information to give him and how to hack in to the computer. And a lot of journalists at that, when that information came out, kind of said, okay, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this case, but it is true that that kind of coaching of a source is qualitatively different than the relationship that most journalists would say is ethical to have with a source in that position, which is more sort of putting your hand out and if someone puts something in it, that's great. So again, we don't know what the sourcing is for this story, but I do think it is useful to draw that distinction if this is someone who basically you know used a secure drop function to provide the international committee of investigative journalists with all these papers i think that is importantly different than either of the two wikileaks tranches that we're discussing so that's that's one point The second point is, I actually do think it's important that we focus on the substance here, at least for a little bit. There is just an incredible amount of stories coming out of this. I mean, the volume of documents is literally millions, and it's kind of mind-boggling. I read through the stories that The Washington Post produced. There are more on the ICIJ website, and I think The Guardian has more as well, so I won't confess to having read the whole thing. But the stories are pretty astonishing. I mean, it's basically... It's making clear the workings of a sort of parallel financial system of the extremely wealthy, and in part in the United States, as we noted, uh, South Dakota is has become apparently a real hub uh, because of some actions by the legislature in that state for trusts that are sort of obscured from public view in a number of different ways, and I think that's bad for a couple of reasons. One is that you know if leaders are able to funnel huge amounts of cash out of their countries and park it offshore. That's bad for accountability. It's bad for democracy. It's bad because it makes it, it's stealing often from the people they they're supposed to represent. It makes it harder for people to hold them accountable. It creates a parallel financial system for the extremely wealthy. All those things are not great, I would say. And the Washington Post stories have some really interesting quotes from uh, either current or former people who worked on prosecutions of crimes related to this kind of parallel financial system saying basically, you know, we're working as fast as we can. But, you know, we made changes after the Panama Papers came out and people are, you know, they've they've moved on to new tricks and these documents show how and, you know, where we as the government and as regulators are always going to be playing catch up. And I think that that struck me as a pretty ominous warning. The other point that I would make is that it is really hard to read these stories. And I don't mean that as a knock on the post team, which I think did an incredible job at sorting through all of this and putting it together. But just like this is really it's really complicated and it's kind of boring. And what I mean by that is that it's boring, and that, you know, this person put money in this trust, which is registered in the name of this person in this country, and then they sent it to this other trust. You know, it is intentionally boring and complicated because that's how you keep regulators from catching on to it. And I think that is also part of what keeps there from being, you know, a public outcry over this kind of thing. Because if you're a South Dakotan and your legislature did this, I don't know at the time if I were in South Dakota, I would have understood what the hell was happening. And yet it has really big implications. So I came out of this feeling like the Post has given this an incredible shot at making these stories sort of engaging and interesting. There's a lot of really interesting graphics. I think they did a great job. I still found it hard to follow. I don't know what the solution is here, but that strikes me as a genuine problem for sort of ginning up public interest in the kind of serious reforms that we'd need to address these problems.
3: I sort of agree. It is very complex and sometimes boring. I also think that the public has become pretty numb to stories like this for a number of reasons. And me personally, I'm just pessimistic that there really won't be in, like an international organization response to to any of this, mainly because I think no matter how many rules, regulations, and roadblocks you put up, there's simply too much money to be made in helping people hide their money. And there sort of always will be. And maybe that's my pessimistic view. The real value in the reporting like this, to me, is the impact that it has in the respective countries of the people named in the papers. And like we mentioned, you know, maybe one reason the US doesn't talk about it as much is because there weren't that many super high profile people named in this but the 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 Czech prime minister who's named in this is alleged to have used an undeclared offshore company to buy property in France and he's in the middle of an election and this is obviously having an effect on that election and Czech police have said they'll act on this new information i also think we're just starting to understand i mean this this round is bigger than the panama papers were like just just the, in terms of the volume of data on this and the investigations from the panama papers which were released over five years ago, are still ongoing. So the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the same organization that put out the Pandora Papers, released a sort of five years retrospective after the Panama Papers in April of 2021. And it just listed from March of 2021, the actions that were still ongoing in various countries. The former chief of staff of the prime minister of Malta was charged with money laundering in March 2021, a presidential candidate in Peru lost a bid to try to get a court to stop an investigation that was the result of the Panama Papers in only March of 2021 alone. And the, the list goes on. So I think we're sort of just starting to understand the, the impact of these things. And we might be a little too U.S. focused to even understand the domestic implications of, of this in other countries. And on the first question, which was the ethics and, and comparison to WikiLeaks, one thing that I would say, particularly with regard to sort of like comparison to Snowden is that something tells me the person that leaked the Pandora papers probably didn't have an internal, you know, inspector general to go to at their offshore financial services company if they if they work there, if if that's even where the leak is coming from. So that's what I would say is also another thing that this is pretty much one of the only ways that you're going to have international public accountability when it comes to things like this.
1: Yeah, Bryce, I think you anticipated exactly kind of where I came out on this, which kind of blends a lot of a lot of your points, which is that I guess I'd I see the answers to my two questions kind of as are interrelated. One, there's clearly an immense US policy interest in any of this stuff because the United States is reliant upon effective and legitimate international financial system, not just for taxing its own citizens, which evidently less of an issue because of our low tax rates, but that's maybe a separate policy problem. But- Also, for effectively enforcing sanctions, like one thing that came out for this investigation is that our sanctions on Russian oligarchs actually causing them a lot of headaches, even though they are finding new ways to get around them. Um, and now we're aware of those new ways and they will become less effective. It's also you know, a major boon for all sorts of foreign corruption issues, which the United States is actually a leader in, in terms of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, investigations and prosecutions, uh, sometimes in ways that are very controversial with foreign governments, but nonetheless, actually has said, this is we have a U.S. interest in promoting above board conduct of business in lots of corners of the world where the United States has more attenuated interest than you might think for other sorts of criminal offenses. And so I actually think that there's like a big interest here. And the problem you're going to run into here is that like people do this, doing this stuff, if it's not a Western intelligence agency, and maybe it is, and there's like policy questions about, you know, whether they should be doing stuff like this. But like the whole point of intelligence stuff is that they do break local laws. Like it would not be be far from unprecedented. You know, I'm not sure that I even think that's the most likely explanation here it's a possibility. If these are really an individual or networks of individuals who are pursuing this, they're doing so at immense personal risk and disclosing something at immense kind of public gain. It's the question I have is like, maybe this is some sort of behavior we want to provide some sort of legal safe harbor for, for these sorts of disclosures. Because it's not clear to me that there is another way to do it. That's going to put, if the United States does it, or whichever government does do it, is going to put them at loggerheads with the other governments that provide these safe havens that are going to say, well, this is a sovereign issue for us. This doesn't concern you. This is how we choose to regulate our economy. But of course, that's not Entirely true, right? In an honest accounting of things. Obviously, it does have ramifications for those bigger states. We've seen the United States like take positions on this stuff. The United States is a leader on counter money laundering. It's a leader on a variety of sorts of issues in the past, but it's never really been a major priority. And those things have gotten really sidetracked by like the fight against terrorism for the last 20 years in terms of focusing on terrorism financing as opposed to just, you know, criminal activities or just general money laundering for the sake of avoiding taxes and other things like that. So maybe this is a good case to see a resurgence towards those efforts in an effort to acknowledge that like these people who are doing these leaks actually are doing a public good and need to provide some assets. That does kind of complicate maybe a little bit of the narrative about Leaks from other contexts. But I think there are ways to distinguish it. If nothing else, you're from the policy outcomes. Like the United States can say, like, this is a desirable policy. And if you start establishing legal safe harbors and saying, like, the, we think these things are helping to unveil actual criminal or problematic behavior, or particularly sanctions violations, which in a lot of cases seems like they could likely be used for that then I think you begin to see a more countervailing sort of interest there where it's 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 another sort of issue. I mean, generally I think leaking is acts of civil disobedience and you do people who do it have to do it with the knowledge that there are legal and practical consequences that flow from that. And that's part of the bargain in a way. That's part of what makes it a brave act in many cases. But, you know, that doesn't mean you can't have mechanisms that might be made to soften that blow or the United States thinks it's in their interest, just as we resist efforts to soften that blow where the United States thinks leaks are problematic and contrary to its interests, as in WikiLeaks and other cases. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there uh, as we are running out of time. But before we leave you for the day, we do have some object lessons. Quinta, let me turn it over to you first.
2: I'm going to start with maybe a little bit more of a serious object lesson, and I'm piggybacking on an object lesson that our redoubtable executive editor, Natalie Orpet, brought to the table when she came on the show a few weeks ago. I went down this weekend to the exhibit in America on the National Mall by the Washington Monument. Which is about 700,000 white flags on the mall, one for each person who died of COVID in the United States since the beginning of the pandemic. As Natalie described, it's incredibly affecting. It's first off, there's just the scale of it is pretty astonishing. It just kept going and going and going. And they've done something really lovely, which is allow people an opportunity to come and write a remembrance for a person they lost on one of the flags or ask a person working at the exhibit to write it for them if they're not able to come. And those flags are, you know, were sort of laid out by grid so people could find the flag for somebody they had lost. I mentioned this even though Natalie described this before, because the exhibit closed this past Sunday, October 3rd. It, so it was uh, temporary. It was always supposed to be temporary. It was there for the month of September. Um, and the flags have now been taken down, and the artist has said that the flags that have remembrances written on them will be preserved, and I think some of them are going to be displayed in the Smithsonian. So it was a really affecting experience, more than I expected, honestly. I posted some pictures of it on, on Twitter, and I was just really struck by how effective it was at Communicating the scale of the loss, which is something that is hard to comprehend. You know, when you get to a number that is as big as 700,000, I don't know about everyone else, but my brain kind of shorts out and just says, that's a big number. But seeing, you know, I think about four square miles of flags on the mall really brings that home. And it did make me think about when the pandemic is over, if and when we're going to have memorials to the people who were lost what they're going to look like, and if there's any way that a permanent memorial, as opposed to something that's temporary, can adequately communicate that scale without sort of taking up too much space to be there permanently. So it's a really interesting question. I will be interested to see how artists solve that problem, and I do hope that The federal government puts up some kind of memorial for just the scale of the loss. Um, Definitely recommend if listeners haven't already that they check out the website um, in America, which we can link in the show notes. They have some pictures up on Twitter and Instagram and their website, and you can take a look if you didn't have a chance to go.
1: Yeah, that was an amazing exhibit. I didn't get the opportunity to go, but just driving by was incredibly powerful and definitely worth checking out for those who haven't seen it. I'll go to a slightly lighter topic, substantially lighter topic, but that's that's okay, which is that for the last few weeks, I think, well, as I've mentioned before here, uh, you know we know scotch is the traditional rational security drink from yesteryear, from Rational Security 1.0. I've mentioned on prior episodes that I am often a beer guy. I enjoy a pumpkin beer and other beers. The higher ABV, the better. But I will say, in recent weeks, I have turned in a unexpected direction, which is towards increasingly fancy cocktails. I've always been a big kind of Negroni aficionado, But I've really been expanding my repertoire in very tasty and wonderful directions, as well as my home bar, which is now overflowing my bar cart. Uh, And that is mostly due to two people. And that is a YouTuber named Anders Ericsson and his partner Oz, who together produce a phenomenal set of YouTube videos about mixing cocktails. Anders I think is is a bartender or at least was a bartender before the pandemic I think he may be back at work now I'm not sure started making these videos from that they're also both professional photographers and videographers or maybe just artists I'm not sure but incredibly high value production that goes into the history of these drinks, what liquors to use, how to make them, the methods each in like seven minutes, which is perfect for my little weeks of time that I have during the weekend. And it's really been phenomenal. So I wanted to plug this channel for anybody who wants to get out there. I specifically want to plug the Trinidad Sour, a cocktail I had never encountered before making this past weekend, which uses Angostura bitters as the base spirit, which is phenomenal and unexpected. It will drain half your bottle of Angostura bitters, but it's totally worth it for this very, very tasty, shaking, Cocktail. And I will say only that for Anders and Oz, if you happen to hear this and hear my plea, what I would beg for you in exchange for this free publicity is to please identify for me a delicious evening cocktail that incorporates espresso or cold brew or something else with high amounts of caffeine and maybe some whiskey or Amaro. It's my other preferences for the simple reason that I, as a father of a nine-month-old, usually by the time it's appropriate for me to have a cocktail, I am already falling asleep. I can use the added caffeinated support. Uh, and something that brings the two together would be amazing. And I haven't found a good solution yet.
2: Scott, have you heard of something called Four Loko?
1: I have I have had some Extreme experiences with fur loco that I will, be, I will not be replicating as a father, <laughs> so for that reason, I'll be staying away from the fur loco train, but something a little more sophisticated in that direction I'm totally open to. Scott needs a hipster alcoholic speedball is what he's looking for. Basically, something in that direction. Yes, exactly. exactly.
0: So my object lesson is my laptop, and it's my object lesson because my laptop, unlike many of your laptops, I'm sure, runs the one and true and only operating system, Linux. And I bring that up because for the last week I have been mocked mercilessly on Zoom meetings and in our Slack, in Lawfare, for being the nerd that uses Linux. And I just want to say, Linux is amazing. It's so much fun to use. It's like a tinkerer's dream. And I highly recommend everyone try it, check it out. It has a bit of a learning curve, but it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying to actually learn how your computer works. And so uh, in the show notes, we'll leave a link to, a, I think, a nice intro video that can help you decide if you want to take the plunge. But I will never apologize for
1: my Linux nerdery. It's just that being a Linux nerd is being such a specific type of late 90s, early 2000s computer nerd, it is, which, is, which I am very familiar with as, as you and I are basically the same age. But it is, I'm glad to see that you're keeping the dream alive uh, so many years after the fact. I am living my truth and my truth is Linux. And just for people to know... Alan also has a mechanical keyboard, which makes an amazing clacking sound as he types it. It basically sounds like Angela Lansbury in the opening credits to Murder, She Wrote anytime yeah. he's tapping out an email. So keep an ear out for that. We may sneak, sneak in a clip during one of these episodes one of these days soon.
0: Every 10 minutes on our Lawfare Zoom call, someone yells at me to mute because it sounds like a herd of wild galloping horses as i really clacking away. It really does.
3: I will confess, as the as the host of the Lawfare Zoom, I have muted you without you knowing. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) while you have been typing so
0: thank you bryce and i want to say you always have permission and you are encouraged to mute me while i'm typing talking or
3: whenever in your judgment that is appropriate understood understood on the subject of nerding out i am a total ken burns nerd i love all ken burns documentaries vietnam fantastic check it out civil war baseball everything but his latest documentary is an eight-hour series on muhammad ali And I just started it last night, and it is absolutely fantastic. Not just another sports documentary. It covers all aspects of his life, the good, the bad. It also covers all the political movements and causes that he was wrapped up in and how they're sort of inseparable from the person that he was. And it is really a really fantastic series. It also made me realize how boring the Tom Brady documentary will be one day, because so few scandals. Like maybe Bill Belichick looked at him wrong the one one day. Maybe that will be like a whole episode, episode three. So DeflateGate. DeflateGate. Yeah, that's okay. Muhammad Ali dodged the Vietnam draft. Okay. Tom Brady has has nothing on this. I guess he didn't technically dodge the draft. He he went to prison for evading draft. But I will highly recommend this.
1: But do you think if there were a draft on right now, Tom Brady would let himself age out of it? I'm not sure he would. <laughs> I think you'd be trying to get back in there with that TB12 system.
3: Well, so the thing is, is what's really interesting is, is Ken Burns mentions how Muhammad Ali would have just been doing USO shows in Vietnam. And he knew that, but he still chose to, to get a conscientious objector status. So I think it's uh really fascinating. I don't know if Tom Brady would be like, there's too much gluten in the military. I can't do this, but you never know.
1: <laughs> it's those nightshades. They will get you. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like Rational Security 1.0, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, as well as links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security Swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast please do follow us on Twitter at RATL security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo and our music as always was performed by Sophia Yan. One flag for your rational security listeners: before we head out for the day, we will be doing a mailbag episode in the coming week. So if you have any questions, questions or comments for Alan, Quinta, or I, or anyone else really in kind of the lawfare orbit that we can try and get on the podcast, send them our way via DM or by replying to one of our messages on Twitter. You will see our request for mailbag submissions pinned to our Twitter account, or you can feel free to to send me an email at scott.anderson at I may regret revealing that email address to the public via podcast, but we'll see. If I get some mailbag submissions, it will be worth it. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and Alan, and our special guest Bryce Clem, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.